The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16 this evening. We'll be brief tonight as we, as we look at a parable this evening. A little bit about me. A pastor uh, obviously introduced me. I'm a, an associate pastor, assistant pastor at Faith Baptist Church in Beaver Creek, Ohio. We've been there coming up on three years now, my wife and I. Uh, my wife is Laurie. She's sitting right there. She is definitely the better half of me. She is wonderful. You uh, get to know her. She's awesome. And, uh, and I love her very much. Um, so we're very thankful to be here. Obviously, I am the, the son of the Matthew Kaczynski. Uh, the, the, the premier deacon here. No, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> premier deacon here at Berean Baptist Church. I'll, I'll hear about that later. But wonderful to, uh, to be his son. I didn't have much of a choice, but it was... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's wonderful to be part of the Kaczynski family. And um, I'm sure that uh, you've gotten to know them over the past couple years. I know they have appreciated being part of this church uh, and, and really appreciated Pastor Smith's ministry to them and this church. And uh, to see your pastor's dedication to the word is encouraging for me as a young preacher, as a young pastor, to see that and, uh, and just want to follow uh, even in, in his faith and his dedication to the word. So Luke chapter 16 is what we're going to look at tonight. And uh, we're specifically looking at a parable. Uh, the, the sermon that I've entitled, if you'd like to write, uh, write that down, is Invest Earthly Riches for Eternal Impact. And as we'll look at in this passage, we'll be looking at a, a parable. And parables are some of the most unique forms of narrative that we find in the Scripture. Sometimes when we come to a parable, their complexity is hard to understand. Yet as we begin to unpack the parable, really the truth will often take us to a place that we do not often intend for it to go. I want you to consider the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. No doubt you're familiar with that. Luke chapter 18. There's two men. They go up to pray. And the results of their prayers reveal an ultimate heart condition. You know the story, the revered Pharisee, the very spiritual man. He goes up and he goes to pray, right? And everybody in the Jewish context would look at this man and think, this is, this is our guy. This is the guy we want to rally behind. He's the representation of, of, of Judaism, of, 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 our, of our faith. And when we read in Luke chapter 18 about this, this parable that Jesus speaks of, he says in verse 14, he says, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And he's speaking of the tax collector. Now, everybody listening to the parable would think that the Pharisee would be the one who would go and be justified. He would be the one who would go home justified rather than the other, the tax collector. But in, indeed, it was the tax collector that was justified, the one that was saved. And we see some principles in parables often. Jesus says, for everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And oftentimes when we look at parables, we're quick to grab uh, applications. We think, oh, well, he that, he, he that has exalted himself, he's going to be abased. He that humbles himself shall be exalted. And this is a true statement. This is something that we understand to be true and biblical in its theme and message of humility. But the shocker of that parable is a presumptuous, arrogant, religious leader was unsaved, and the repentant, remorseful tax collector was justified. 
It was a shocking thing for the Jewish hearer to hear that. It was a shocking thing for them to try to come to grips with the understanding that this man, this tax collector, the most hated man in Israel at that time, was actually saved while the Pharisee was not. He was not justified. And so Jesus would do this in his earthly ministry. He would use parables, which are true-to-life stories, that would exhibit a spiritual reality. If I can use it maybe in our modern vernacular, uh, parables are somewhat like truth bombs, okay? They're, they're, they're truth bombs. Literally, Jesus would take a, a grenade of, of truth, of spiritual truth, and he'd pull the pin out and he'd throw it into the audience. And oftentimes, with these parables, someone was bound to get hurt. Someone was bound to be spiritually hurt. And so often when we look at parables, they don't go where we think they should go. We don't even know where, they, where we think they will go, but the parable of the dishonest steward here in Luke chapter 16 really falls in line with that thought. We think it should go some way. We think it would go one way, but it actually takes a turn and goes a far different rate. So let's go ahead and read the passage before us. Luke chapter 16, and starting at verse 1, reading through verse 13. Scripture says, And he said also unto his disciples, Luke chapter 16 and verse 1, There was a certain rich man, which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him, and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Well, take thy bill and sit down quickly, sit down quickly and write fifty. Then said he to another, And how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto them, Take thy bill and write for score. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This passage describes a story, a parable, of a lying, cheating, unfaithful servant who is found out by the master and put on notice that he will be fired. This unfaithful servant 
then cunningly uses his master's wealth to buy friendships that will be useful for cushioning his fall from his position. This was an unrighteous man who was using money for his own selfish interests. And so as we look at the passage, how is it possible for us to build any kind of positive spiritual principle on on such an unethical action of an unrighteous steward? He was bad. He was unethical. He was a a, a very bad individual. Yet in verse 8, we read a shocker where verse 8, the Lord commends the unjust steward. He commends him for his actions. Can any good teaching come from such a seemingly bad example? Well, tonight I have a very simple thought that I'd like to present to you, and that is this, that saints, that is you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of our Lord, that are bound for eternity, ought to be more active, zealous, and mindful about preparing for eternity and laying up treasure in heaven. That's you and I. We ought to be more active, zealous, and mindful about preparing for eternity and laying up treasure in heaven. So let's dive into this briefly and look at the parable. The first verse, Jesus says unto his disciples that there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his good. As we mentioned earlier before, within parables, Jesus speaks from both the expected but also the unexpected events in life. The main character in our passage is an unrighteous manager, an unrighteous, unjust steward. He is guilty not only of incompetence, but he's also guilty of embezzlement. He is wicked, he is conniving, he is crooked, and he is the main subject of our story here. And the parable, just to get some context, is not really being addressed to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the previous three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, those parables were addressed to the scribes and the Pharisees. This one, Jesus turns and looks and faces his disciples. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were present. We see this in verse 16 and verse 14, or sorry, chapter 16 and verse 14, where the Pharisees also, they heard all of these things. But the primary audience of Luke chapter 16, and the primary audience of this parable was to believers, to disciples of Jesus Christ, to followers of him. He's speaking to his people, the individuals that follow Christ, that that is you and me. He's speaking to us. Now, as we dive into this, the, the, the rich man, as, as we see, he was obviously wealthy enough to hire a manager to manage all of his business endeavors. This, this, this steward, this manager, or maybe we could call him an administrator of a farming operation, most likely uh, was the, the, the intent. He was, he was absent from the day-to-day, this, 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 uh, this owner. But this is why he would be unaware of the first-hand perspective of the shadiness that was transpiring in the parable. It is likely clear that the steward was himself a skilled and resourceful manager. This was a man of refinement. This is a guy who had full control over affairs and, and all of the assets of this owner. We see the unjust steward could act on his own authority without any type of close oversight or interference. 
One author puts it this way. He says, he would not have put in such a, such a man in, role, in the role of the first place if he did not have the rich man's full unconditional confidence. These two men probably had a long-standing relationship of mutual trust and maybe even affection. In Jewish times, stewards were often trusted servants who had been born and raised in the master's household. They were treated as if they were family. So you've got the owner, and you've got the unjust steward, and the owner trusts the steward to operate this farming operation, this business that is the master's business. But the downfall of the unjust steward, the downfall of this day-to-day manager, the downfall of this person was that he began to handle his master's assets in a way that was wasteful. And we don't know exactly, the parable doesn't tell us exactly how he was handling the money, but perhaps he was overspending. Perhaps he was using his master's resources to pay for personal expenses. We don't know exactly how he was doing, but there was some type of misappropriation of finances on behalf of the masters. And all seems well until there's an accusation that reaches the owner's ear. And we read that in the first verse. There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. This word accused is the Greek word diablos, which means slanderer or accuser. If you're familiar with Spanish, diablos, diablo, the devil. This is the, the, the word that a slanderous accusation comes against this unjust steward. And so someone, we don't know in the story, brings a slanderous accusation with a hostile intent towards this steward. Well, word reaches the steward, the steward's owner, and this word of the steward reaches the owner that he was wasting or that he was squandering the owner's possessions. So naturally, what does he do? Well, we see in verse 2, he calls him. The master calls the steward. He calls him, and he says unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest no, be no longer steward. Naturally, the owner calls the steward, calls this manager, calls this administrator, and he fires him, naturally, right? But he makes one final request of the steward. He says one final thing. He says, give an account of your stewardship. In essence, give me a final accounting. Tell me what you've been leading. In essence, submit your final report. Wrap up your final business and get out. It's really what he's saying. But the problem is, this allows this steward to do one last detrimental act to this very profitable farming operation. As we look at the story, this is a very bad decision on the owner's part. He should have looked at the guy and said, get out, you're fired, you're done. But he says, no, 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 give, give me a, a, an account of your stewardship. In essence, let's finish up, submit your final report, let's wrap this up, and then go ahead and get out. He should have let him go immediately. He should have released him. And since there is nothing to lose, the manager figures out one last plan to selfishly gain. 
And so we read this plan. We read the plan of the steward. It says, then the steward said within himself, he says, what shall I do? Verse 3, for my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. To beg I am shaped. Look at verse 4. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, when I lose my job after this final count, they may receive me into their houses. So let's start by understanding this reality. He says to himself, what am I going to do? I'm losing my job here. He says, my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. And and this is a a uh, white-collar guy. Okay, we come from Dayton, Ohio. We have Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, very prominent Air Force Base. They call it the brain of the Air Force in our country. I have a lot of people in our church who work at Wright-Pat Air Force Base, and we would potentially consider them white-collar individuals. The, the banking executive, the, the higher-ups at, at an Air Force Base, this is the white-collar individual, and, and here's what he says. He says, I, I can't dig, okay? I, I, that's something that is a, a shame uh, to me. I, I, I can't dig, I can't beg, I can't, I can't be put on the street. He was a professional. The modern-day banking exit. So he says, I can't dig. It's too hard. It's below my pay grade. And begging is an embarrassment to my caliber or someone of my caliber. But it hits him. And you see, he says, I am resolved what to do. This is the Greek word agnon. In essence, it's aha. I know. I know exactly what I'm going to do. Here is what I'm going to do. It's a hallelujah moment for this steward. He's got a plan. He grabs the principles from Joel Osteen's book, His Best Life Now. He realized, I'm not a failure. He says, all I need to do is be a better me. I just need to embezzle a little bit more. And if I do this, when I'm out of a job, I'm going to secure my future. So let's look at the plan. Here's, here's the plan that this this unjust steward has. He calls every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? Verse six, he said, and hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take thy bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then verse seven said he to another, how and how much owest thou? And he said, and hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto them, take thy bill and write four score. So I want you to stay with me. Here's the plan. Okay. Debts in this agricultural economy were normally paid at harvest time. The sizes of these debts show that the men that he meets with are men of substantial means. This is not just a small business. This is a, uh, an incredible farming business. Now, we understand that the two commodities from this passage that he renegotiates these debts are olive oil. Now, olive oil is a staple of course, in every Mediterranean culture. The second um, renegotiation of debt commodity that he uses is of wheat. Now, there is no hint of price fluctuation or crop failure. Sometimes what they would do is uh, they would maybe renegotiate a debt if it was a bad year so that they wouldn't drive a a farmer or another individual out of business. So the passage doesn't talk about how there was any type of price fluctuation. It doesn't talk about how there was any type of crop failure, maybe to think about renegotiating or having a reduced payback uh, as to really not drive the farmers out of business. So he's not renegotiating for the benefit of 
other businesses, although they are benefiting greatly, what he's doing is an incredible favor. This man is doing deep discounting for these other, uh, these other uh, individuals. So, so let's kind of think through what he's talking about. As we see here uh, that he took 100 measures of oil. That, that's roughly about 875 gallons of olive oil. Now you're looking back in biblical times at about 1,000 denarii for 875 gallons. If you cut that by 50%, what we're talking about is a debt of $117,000 being cut by 50 down to 58,500. From 117 to 58.5, it's roughly, in biblical times, a year and a half wage for the average worker. And then he talks about the wheat, and he does about a 20% reduction, which would equate to about two years for the average worker. This is deep discounting. This is uh, incredible favors that this steward is showing towards these other farmers. Verse 5 states that not only did he do that with the olive oil, not only did he do that with the wheat, but if you look at verse 5, it says that he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And we just see two examples. To those he thought he might break the most advantage, we see this bigger cut. But this is all done, according to verse 5, quickly. This is, this is not something that's, that's, that's a, a slow process. This is, let's get them in, let's do the deep discounting, let's in, give them those incredible favors, and we're going to do it quickly. And so this is the parable. This is the first thought of, of the parable, verses 1 through 7. But in verse 8, we come to the shocker. The shocker of the parable is seen in verse 8, where the Lord commends the unjust steward because he has done wisely. You see, at this point, we would have sympathized with the rich man, the owner of this prosperous establishment. However, we reach a shocking response. Now, I want us to understand, because sometimes this happens, a lot of times with parables, um, there's a lot of allegorizing, well, you know, is the owner Jesus? Am I, do I somehow fit into this parable? How do I fit, you know, am I the unjust? Okay, it's not the parable of the wise and foolish servants. This is, this is a story. The, the owner is not Jesus. I know that sometimes gets confused with in other parables. But the shocking response is when he says that he commends the unjust steward. This word commended is to be praised. And the owner commends. He literally praises this steward's actions. And it says because he has done wisely. That is to say, cautiously or keen-wittedly. He was circumspect in his understanding of the situ situation. He commends this unjust steward because he's done something that is keen-witted. It's something that is, is smart. He was prudent in doing this scheme. Now, even in today's business world, rich businessmen will often voice admiration for the smart but underhanded tactics of both rivals and partners. Now, this is the nature of business, as usual in the godless realm. The, the rich man certainly did not approve of the man's disloyalty. 
He did not think highly of this individual's character. He doesn't applaud the steward's lack of honor. But what he commends with this unjust steward is his forward looking. This man had enough wisdom to think, I'm losing my job and I better prepare for my future. I got to think about what's coming up next. I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to be out of money and I need to figure out how I'm going to make it in this world. There was a brief and a very short window of time. That's why the passage says in verse 6 that he quickly did this. There's a very brief and short window of time for this unjust steward to gain as much as he can for a long-term advantage. So what does he do? He wins friendships. How does he win those friendships? Well, he wins friendships with flattering generosity. It was not just one of the debtors that he does this deep discounting. It's not, you know, just even two of the debtors that he gives these incredible favors to. This man owned them all. He owns them all. He has them tied around his finger. This unjust steward was securing a future for himself with the very last opportunity that was afforded to him. The unjust steward. So, what does it mean? What does that mean to me? What is Jesus attempting to explain to his disciples in this passage as we see before us in Luke chapter 16? What is Jesus uh, attempting to teach us through a passage like this today? Well, you see in the second part of verse 8, the parable explained. We saw the parable, we saw the shocker that the Lord commends this unjust steward, but then we see the explanation of the parable, and that uh, takes us to the end of our passage. Look at verse 8 with me. The Lord commends the unjust steward because he has done wisely, and here's the explanation that Jesus gives. He says, For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. I'm going to break this down in just a moment, but I want to read it one more time for us, and just let the words of God sink in as you think through this verse. Jesus says to his disciples, he says this to us, this is not to the Pharisees, it's not to the scribe, these are to his followers. He says, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Well, who are the sons of the world? Who are the sons of the world? Well, we understand the sons of the world. They're those that have no interest in the kingdom of God. The sons of the world only desire to pad their lives now and then to look forward to the last three decades of their existence on this earth. The sons of the world are more concerned and they are more clever when it comes to securing a future for their retirement years. The sons of the world are the unregenerate individuals who want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus saying? He says, the children of this world, those that are not saved, those that do not believe in Christ as the Savior, they are wiser than the children of light. Well, who are the children of light? 
Why? I pray that's you. I pray that that is this church. We are the children of light. We understand that. Numerous passages. And what Jesus is saying that sinners and those with earthly mindsets are more forward-thinking than saints are in considering eternity. The children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So he uses a comparison to point out something that is obvious. Unregenerate men have more urgency to prepare for their earthly future than God's people begin to even consider eternal priorities. So what Jesus says to the disciples and ultimately to us as the church today, he says, wake up. Sinners are more concerned with the last uh, few decades of their life than saints are in considering eternity. So, Christian, who shudders at every opportunity to declare the gospel, wake up. You see, sinners are more concerned with the end of their life than we are of eternity. And, and wake up. The Christian who doesn't support gospel endeavors financially and wake up those Christians who value pursuing earthly goals over heavenly priorities. And wake up, Christian, who cares more about the kid's sports game or the kid's extracurricular than that of his spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And wake up to the Christian who says, I've done my time serving Christ. There's always a young man. There's always a young lady that you can invest in. Think about just how awesome, I mean, Miss Melissa's doing with all the children all the kids coming up, investing in them to lead the church tomorrow. Now wake up, Christian, who thinks that your body is your own over the humble submission of every part of your being. And wake up, Christian, in this room and abroad, who values anything more than Jesus Christ alone. Because sinners and those with earthly mindsets, they think more about the end of their life than saints do about eternity. That is what Jesus is saying. He says the children of this world, they're more wise. They're wiser than the children of light. And so saints, you and I that are bound for eternity, we ought to be more active. We ought to be more zealous. We ought to be more mindful about preparing for the future, for our future in eternity, and laying up treasure in heaven. Think about 1 John and chapter 2, verse 17. The world, the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that what? Doeth the will of God, abideth forever. Look, church, your house, it's going to be sold to another person. And your car, maybe not so much here in California, but in Ohio, it's going to rust out. Look, vacations, they're great, but they always come to an end and your money will go away. Look, our time is growing less and less. And the question is, what are you and what uh, am I doing to prepare for eternity? How are we investing our time and our finances into the kingdom of God? Do we just fritter away our time and money on things that do not make a difference? And so this leads us into the immediate context 
of this passage, this parable sets, uh, sets the context up to, so that we understand what really Jesus is attempting to get at. And our perspective, specifically in this passage on money, should shape our thoughts and behavior towards others, ourself, and God, and specifically in that order. So verse 9, let's look at these three final principles as we close down. Verse 9 says, and I say unto you, Jesus says, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon, that is money of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. This is somewhat of a confusing verse when you look at it, but when you tie this thought of failing to money, um, it's clarified to that subject of mammon, clarified to the subject of money. And what Jesus is saying is when money inevitably fails, when it fails, make sure that you have friends of that money. In essence, make sure that you've used your finances to make friends that will receive you into everlasting habitations. So so, so we could say it like this. Here's what Jesus is saying. Use your money to make friends, not earthly friends, but friends who will welcome you into your eternal home. Let me simplify it even more. Here's what he says. Put your money to work towards others with an eternal mindset. Maybe even simpler. Put your finances towards gospel endeavors. Support your local church. Support missions. Why? Because we want to use everything that God has given us. We want to leverage that for the glory of Jesus Christ. So if a scheming dishonest, earthly steward is smart enough to use his stewardship to make friends for such a brief, temporal future, how much should the church, believers and followers of Christ, use our master's resources to make friends for eternity? And so who is going to know about Christ due to your prioritization of the gospel. Specifically, in this context, he's speaking of money. How about time, though? How do you invest into eternity by investing into others? Now, clearly, Jesus is teaching us from this passage to invest our earthly money into the far greater enterprise of gospel ministry. By investing in the gospel through God's people, the local church, we can propagate gospel truth. In essence, relationships formed in Jesus Christ are gained, that are gained, they last for an eternity. And so saints that are bound for eternity, they ought to be more active, zealous, and mindful about preparing for the future and laying up treasures in heaven. So we see firstly that money should be used to invest in others. But then look at verse 10. We need to understand this truth that we are stewards of God and we are stewards of the master owner's resources. Verse 10 says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust, or sorry, excuse me, your trust, the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? What Jesus reminds the believer is that we are stewards of the resources that God has given. Look, 
Your car, your house, everything that we have, our time, the the very uh, beat in our heart is owned by the master owner. God directs our lives. And so he clarifies that as God directs our lives and owns everything that we have, we are accountable to whatever amount God allows us to steward. The passage clarifies that we can be faithful in much, we can be faithful in little, and the way that it is worded leads us to believe that Jesus is encouraging the wide stewardship of small amounts before expecting the stewardship of more. So whether we have great possession or whether we have little possession, we as believers must commit to using it for the glory of God. And so, how do you use your house? Do you regularly have people in your home in which you can share the gospel with? Do you regularly have people in your home for Bible studies? Do you regularly have people in your home to minister to them? How do you use what you have to leverage the gospel? Is your house just a retreat to protect your family, or is it a revolving door of guests, both saved and unsaved? See, those who fail to invest their wealth in the work of redemption, they impoverish themselves forever because the eternal reward comes to those who are faithful. Church, the things that you and I own, they're not for private benefit. But the things we own, the time that we have, they are to be used for the gospel. We are to leverage them to be used for the good of others and the glory of God. So not only should money be used to invest in others, we have to understand that we are stewards of God. He owns it all. But thirdly and finally this evening, money should never take the place of God. Verse 13, Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. I want you to consider this. Jesus says that the way that we manage our stewardship, our time, which is valuable, our money, which is valuable, the way that we manage the things that we have, the way that we manage our lives in reverence to the glory of God is actual evidence revealing whether we are genuine believers or mere pretenders. Because those who belong to God cannot serve money and material things. Jesus says you, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot live with an eternal mindset, but also an earthly mindset. Does that make sense? It, it, you can't do both. You can't value the things on this earth and also the things that matter for eternity. And so I'd caution you, church, an earthly mindset that is evidenced by any believer, a mindset of earthly-mindedness is a red flag for any follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says you cannot serve God and man. You cannot have both. And so people, believers who squander all of their resources on things that do not last, i.e. their time, their money, 
their opportunities. Those that plow their wealth right back into unrighteous money, they are not good stewards of the living God. In fact, Jesus would say what those individuals do with their treasure reveals where their heart really is. We understand from other passages, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now often, in a message, a preacher will look for an illustration. An illustration to try to help paint the picture and stick the point. You know what I'm talking about, Pastor Smith? Like, get a real good illustration, right? Maybe not so much. I want to grab a great illustration to try to help paint the picture, help stick the point. But the text, it gives no better illustration than that which is mentioned in verse 14. So read with me verse 14. The Pharisees also. They were covetous. That is, they were lovers of money. That is, they were earthly minded, right? The Pharisees also, who were covetous, they heard all of these things, and what did they do? They derided him. A Pharisee. The perfect pretender, right? One who appears to serve God, but their real God was money. Their real God was here on earth. Church, no man can serve two purposes, and the parable shows us that sinners and those with earthly mindsets can be more forward-thinking than saints that uh, should be considering eternity. But I submit to you this evening that saints, followers of Jesus that are bound for eternity, ought to be more active, ought to be more zealous, and mindful about preparing for eternity. And so the question tonight is very simple. Are you leveraging, as we go into 2020, are you leveraging your resources, that is, your time, that is, your finances for the kingdom of God? Are you, is your family, are you leveraging everything that you have for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God? And if the answer to that is no, Jesus from this passage would say, wake up, wake up, because sinners with earthly mindsets can be a whole lot more forward-thinking than saints are in considering eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that it is quick, that it is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, I pray that your words would not depart as we exit this building, Lord, that these would be truths that we would consider not only tonight, but throughout the week. We bless you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www 
www.bebaptist.org.